0: listeners welcome to this episode of the bee podcast today we get to sit down and meet abby stevens as she shares her navigation through life and love and the evolution of her faith Uh, her story is one of self-discovery and resilience and just a complete transformation so from the early years of being deeply rooted in her faith within the evangelical church abby has navigated a path that um that really challenged her beliefs um, and as an adult, expanded her understanding and ultimately shaped a new narrative for her life. So today, we're going to deep dive into the moments that challenged her, the revelations that reshaped her worldview, and just the love and the faith that have taken on a completely new meaning um, than, than before. So whether you are someone who has experienced a similar journey, or you're just curious about the diverse paths that life can take, especially um, Growing up in the evangelical church, this episode promises to be a thought provoking and heartfelt conversation. So here's our girl, Abby. Abby, I am so excited to finally sit down and talk with you about this, this subject. Um, I have admired you for so long, like growing up and knowing you. And I know that we have a lot of similar, similar stories and similar experiences, uh, but also very different. And so I just can't express to you enough how happy I am (laughs) that you have agreed to sit down and do this with me. So how are you?
1: I'm well. I am glad to be on the other side of 2023, looking forward to 2024, hopefully. <laughs> Fingers Amen crossed. into
0: that. hmm Yep, it does go fast. Okay, Abby. Abby Stevens, you are currently living in Florida. Tell me about uh, who you are, your current career, family, hobbies. Let's hear it. Yeah, I am an
1: Iowa transplant to Florida. I've been here 10 years, and uh, I'm currently teaching. I teach... Um, high school, ELA, at a charter school down here in Orlando. I am close uh, with my younger brother and his daughter who also live here and get to see them and spend time with them, which is amazing. Um, And that is where I am and what I'm doing these days.
0: You're an avid reader. You have. yes. I just saw your books, your highly recommended books of 2023. Um, What would be your your top, top book that you read this year? Well, in 2023.
1: In 2023, I think the best book that I read was Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. She's been a favorite since I read Poisonwood Bible, which I think a lot of people know her for. Um, Her insights into humanity and her ability to write complex characters that you sort of love and sort of are uncomfortable caring about because they're so tragically terrible and broken (laughs) um like much like myself I would say (laughs) um is probably why I enjoy reading her characters but um Demon Copperhead is her take on um David Copperfield the Dickens novel and it's just heartbreaking and beautiful and human and it's the sort of novel um the the central character is demon copperhead his name is damon his given name is damon but his nickname is demon because of his upbringing Um, there's uh he comes from a single parent home in appalachia and all of the things that you think of when you think of that part of the world are a part of his life and yet there's king solver somehow makes you aware that we separate ourselves into these groups of people people who live in Appalachia and people who live in the Midwest and people who are middle class and people who are upper middle class and then there's just so much that we all experience as humans that we forget how much we have in common um and it's a a book and a character that will stay with me for a long time
0: that's awesome okay well putting it on my list not taking any classes right now so I am I'm that's the one thing that I'm looking forward to hey. No more classes. yeah so I'm I'm looking forward to that so yeah gonna add it um and also every other book that you listed on Facebook today okay <laughs> so <laughs> so Abby um uh, we are here to kind of talk about your upbringing um your early influences specifically your evangelical up upbringing so um let's just dive right into it. Can you describe your early experiences with evangelical Christianity and how it shaped your upbringing?
1: Yeah, it's impossible to overstate how central evangelical Christianity is to both how I was raised, but also who I am today. Um, It has been, and I think in many ways continues to be, even as this journey has led me in directions I never anticipated, as it re- regards uh, or as it involves my faith tradition. Um, it just is a central part of who I am and how I have become who I am, and I continue to be surprised by how um, transformational that faith tradition has been and continues to be in how I see the world, um, how I view other people, how I view my place in the world, my role in the world. Um, You know, I was four when I made the decision to follow Jesus. And I tell people that, and oftentimes they kind of, you know, oh, but did you really? And I don't really know how to describe it other than to say, Yes, I was four and I had a four year old's understanding and maturity, but I meant it as much as a four year old can mean it. And um, I mean it as much as a not four year old um, can mean it today. You know, at 45, um, after 40 years of this faith at the center of my life, I don't mean it any less um, now that I understand more about it or maybe less, maybe I understand less about it than I did when I was four. Maybe that is, maybe that is the revelation of this whole journey is that I have, um, I I had a certainty and I have lost that certainty. Um, But this, the centrality of my faith and my faith tradition is really at the center of my entire identity. And that's part of what has made this so painful. And so um, radical, um, as I've walked this path.
0: Okay. When you talk about certainty, uh, you were four years old when you decided to follow Jesus. Um, and I'm certain you prayed that prayer, uh, the sinner's prayer where you asked Jesus into your heart, right? Um, so you're talking about certainty of that. How is, how is your certainty different now?
1: I don't have much of it. Um, I have let go of certainty in a lot of ways. Certainty
0: Um, certainty
1: that I know things, certainty that I am somehow in 2023, the bearer of all correct theology and all correct doctrine, and that I have found the golden path to truth and rightness that every generation before me got wrong and every other faith tradition has gotten wrong. And um, Christians who disagree with me have all managed to get it wrong, but somehow I know it all. Um, And it, I don't mean to indicate that I don't feel like I know anything. I feel like I am choosing to know less uh, with certainty and to hold more things um, openly. And although I hate that metaphor in some ways, because of how I think it's been abused and misused. But the idea of holding some things with a closed hand and some things with an open hand um, is one that comes from my faith tradition. And even as I say that, it's a reminder of the ways that I've been formed by this, all of these metaphors, all of these ways of thinking about things. I just naturally lapse into that language. And then then I check myself and think, uh, I don't know if that's the best metaphor but it's the one that just comes into my mouth, my mind and out of my mouth. Well, and uh, go ahead. yeah,
0: you were, you were four, you know, you were four, but yes. prior to that, I mean, prior to this, it was before you were even born. Um, you, you were, um, this was kind of, kind of, uh, this, the faith that you evangelicalism was the faith that you were born into. Um, so I mean, it makes sense that you would have some of the jargon and the not necessarily the jargon, but you would have some of the, um, the terms, the phrase that we, we I, me too, uh, right. used. I mean, I
1: think some of it is probably jargon. <laughs> A jargon? <laughs> some of it probably is. It's that insider language yeah. that is easy to lapse into and hard to break out of. Uh, And I talk about certainty and, you know, um, and there was, I think that the faith tradition of evangelical Christianity just carries with it a lot of certainty, but there was also a lot of uncertainty. And I, I remember also when I was maybe four or five, I wasn't very old. um, I remember hearing, you know, sermons. I was often in church, big church with my parents or even in Sunday school, um, I was really serious about my faith. And I remember hearing stories about people who died and went to hell and asking questions and getting different answers from different people. But I had this very real fear that I had done this incorrectly because there was a certainty associated with how you were supposed to do this. Right. I mean, I even think just a minute ago, you said you probably prayed the prayer and That was it, right? You had to say the prayer and you had to say, it was like a formula. There was, and I I wasn't old enough to really understand. I wasn't cognitively putting all these pieces together until many years later. But I knew that there was a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. And if I had messed it up or I hadn't really meant it, or what if I prayed it, but I, I didn't mean it at the time, or what if I sinned after I prayed it? And I didn't know the rules I couldn't figure out. And I would lay in bed. And I just remember how terrified I was that I had done it wrong. And like there was some talisman or something that I could hold on to that would help me get it right. And so I would lay in bed and I would pray over and over in my head, Jesus come into my heart, Jesus come into my heart, Jesus come into my heart, Jesus come into my heart. And then I remember thinking, but what if I have to say it out loud? What if? God won't accept it if I think it only in my head. What if he needs me to say it out loud? And so then I, and I shared a room with my little sister and even as young as I was at what, five years old, I knew it was a little bit crazy, like that I was doing this, that I was stuck in this. And so I would whisper it under my breath as quietly as I could, hoping that that one of them would take. And I just remember thinking, one of these times, I'm going to say it and mean it at the same time. And then he'll actually come into my heart. And I did it, I don't know, for a year. Um, And I would do it until I fell asleep just over and over again. And so even when I talk about certainty, there was a, a certainty that I should be certain. But I was often unsure and uncertain about that certainty. Did I do it right? Did I get the right formula put together um did I mean it correctly because God knew if I meant if I was lying you know like what if he what if it was just I don't know what I thought it was
0: and what if he thinks that I'm doing it out of fear and not out of longing and actual fear and respect for him yeah
1: yeah Mm -hmm. so so yeah I talk about certainty but there was a lot of uncertainty too um and I feel bad for that little girl
0: yeah I mean it you bet on all of it all of it is which is so (laughs) like juxtaposed you're certain uh that this is the way and this is the way um i'm mandalorian reference like this is the way that we do it and you can know for certain that this happens alas there was so much uncertainty and i mean how how do you know Lots of lots of I, I remember experiencing a lot of fear as a child as well, uh, which is yeah. not at all the point, um, which is so unfortunate,
1: no, and I think it's important, at least for me to know like no one told me I needed to be afraid. That wasn't the intent.
0: Well, it was um, implied by, yeah, you're going to uh, burn in hell.
1: Well, yes. and I, you know, I hear people talk today, and I think there is still that people feel like that fear is missing. And I never experienced a missing of that fear. It was present constantly. And I second guessed so much. um, And I still find myself doing that second guessing so much. Even as I release the certainty, is it okay if I do that? Maybe I'm doing myself to hell by releasing the certainty about this particular teaching or this, that particular teaching or this interpretation of this scripture um, and untying myself and tethering myself from that fear that if I get it wrong, God's not big enough or gracious enough or good enough to know my heart, um, a heart that since I was four has longed to follow after him. If that's not enough. um, And yet I still feel that Fear in the pit of my stomach at times that somehow I have wandered beyond the boundaries of his grace or his ability to let me be wrong um so
0: well depending on um which denomination which is another thing that we could go on and on about uh, (laughs) but depending on which denomination of the uh of the protestant faith the evangelical faith uh you can lose your salvation depending on if you have wandered too far from his grace, um, which again, speaks to your point that you made at the very beginning. Um, I think that's funny.
1: Long. I grew up in a house with parents who had different beliefs on that particular idea. And I, it was never, again, it was discussed openly in front of us. I don't know that either one of them ever considered how, and again, there was no ill intent There was no malice. There was no cruelty intended at all. Um, And at the time I didn't notice it until many years later when I realized that those conversations and that lack of certainty had really left me with some big questions, listening to parents who disagreed about this particular theology of, you know, can you lose your salvation? Um, it was a big deal to me listening because I wasn't certain who was right. And I was afraid if I got it wrong, I was in big trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's a lot to carry when you're young.
0: Absolutely. So a few years ago, you had mentioned in a previous conversation that you, uh, had a guest spot on a blog. Um, could you share with us, uh, some of your insights that you shared on this blog regarding your faith?
1: Absolutely. Um, So this is what I wrote. Uh, It was for a blog called Red Letter Christians, um, and it was a book study that they were doing. So this was a guest entry. I wrote, the memory has the feel of a Polaroid. The colors are washed out. The frame is small. The lines are indistinct and slightly blurred. I was four standing in the middle of my bed, bouncing and trying to reach the low ceiling in the room I shared with my younger sister. My mom was putting away folded clothes. As I jumped, I was trying to recite the cross-stitched prayer that hung on the wall next to my bed. I can still remember it. Father in heaven, hear my prayer. Keep me in thy loving care. Be my guide in all I do and bless all those who love me too. We had memorized it three words at a time and prayed it each night at bedtime. A thought, mom, do you love Jesus more than you love dad? A beat of silence. Well, yes, but I interrupted. Do you love Jesus more than you love me? I knew the answer to this one. Mom and dad loved each other, sure, but not like they loved me. A longer beat of silence. Well, yes, but I stopped jumping. I was filled with something I couldn't begin to understand, but even at such a tender age, I knew it was real. I want to love Jesus more than anyone or anything too. And that was it. He had me. Thus began my journey with Jesus and thus it continues. There's a quote in the first chapter of the book called Reconstructing the Gospel that says, whatever humanity's problems, Jesus is the answer. This I believe. Yes and amen. Um, I remember that moment very clearly. I remember that prayer. Um, And I remember very clearly just thinking I had her, (laughs) um, that there was no way she would say that she loved Jesus more than she loved me. And it was a stunning moment for me at four. Um, and I didn't pray a prayer. I didn't ask Jesus into my heart. I just decided that I wanted to love him more than I loved anyone else or anything else too. And, um, When I tell people I became a Christian at four, that's the moment that I'm referring to. Um, And the funny part is for a long time, I would have told you I didn't have, you know, the if you grew up in the church, you have a salvation story. And I would have told you I didn't have one because I didn't remember praying that prayer until those nights when I was so afraid. Um, But I really think that if I had a moment, that was it.
0: I guess from that point on, did you then feel close to God? Did you have a closeness or were you just driving for it?
1: Um, it's hard to say, I think. I think probably a little of both. I think that, again, this is, you know, uh, the 45-year-old with hindsight looking back. I think that there are moments that at the time I believed were a closeness to God that I felt. I do think that there were times when I did feel close to him um, as I was, when I was very, very young, I guess. Um, But I also think, and this is, you know, looking back that there were probably moments where I manufactured that feeling because I believed I was supposed to feel close to him in those moments, um, or I didn't know what that, was supposed to feel like or to be like. And so I learned that there were emotional moments that I was supposed to be feeling close to God. I don't know if I really did in all of those moments. Um, I would never say that I never did. There are moments I can think of they are some of the most precious moments of my life. When I know that 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 sensation that I was close to him was real, I don't know that they happened as often as I believed they did at the time, and maybe that's just me not being generous with myself in my past. I don't know, um, but I absolutely believed that I was close to him my entire childhood.
0: Okay, so. Were there specific teachings or practices within the evangelical faith as you were growing from, you know, this four-year-old child to um, elementary age, middle school, high school, that left a lasting impact on your worldview?
1: Again, it would be really hard to overstate how many of them have left a lasting impact on my worldview. Some of them pretty negatively um the ones that immediately come to mind tend to be negative at this point uh which is unfortunate because they're not all negative um but purity culture and it's just hot garbage mess that it has left strewn across my life um and so many other lives and
0: for for people who might not know what purity culture is can you um explain that Um,
1: purity culture, I mean, at its core is, you know, this teaching that sexual purity before and outside of marriage is sinful. And there's so much that goes along with it. So much of purity culture teaches young women that they are, that we are the keepers of sexual purity, that our bodies, the view of our bodies, whether they are clothed or unclothed, tightly or not tightly, um, moving in particular ways or somehow visible and accessible to men will cause them to lust. Um, and will cause men to lust. Men, yes. Um, and therefore, it's the responsibility of young women to hide and clothe and cover and somehow manage their bodies in a way that is never lustful. Um, for men, um, we're never to cause our brothers to stumble. You'll hear that a lot in youth groups. Mm -hmm. Um, women and girls tend to be held as the, as the responsible party for all sexual sin in some fashion. Um, it's hard to describe in a nutshell because it's not a nutshell. Um, it's very puritanical which maybe is unfair, unfair to the Puritans. Um, <laughs> uh, um, very, very fearful of human sexuality, of bodies, of attraction, of desire, of anything that might get close to a line of crossing over into lust. And so everything in this, this fear that we will go too far, we self-edit everything out. Um, body parts aren't named, um, physical behaviors aren't named. Of course, they're not done ever. Um, the worst thing you can do in purity culture is have sex before you marry. There is no greater sin. And that sounds insane when I say it out loud. And yet that's really what I was taught both literally and just what you absorbed um, but there were youth group leaders who would say things that were that dramatic. You know, you're a chewed up piece of gum. If you've been sexually impure, um, you're, they would have us wad up paper and throw it on the ground and stomp on it. those were the sexually impure, um, people. And although the boys participated in this, it was the girls who then got the message. You can never be clean again. You know, girls, you're just going to give yourself away to all these boys. Um, there's a lot there, a lot to unpack, but that's a very uh, non-precise, concise definition of purity culture.
0: Well, and then you know, after you get married, it's suddenly the greatest thing, and we right. we preach on how wonderful sex is after marriage. But up until then, um, there's again fear and shame associated.
1: With sex. Lots of shame. Lots and lots and lots of shame. Shame is a favorite tool of purity culture to keep people in line. And it's wielded with cutthroat precision by the church by each other. I mean, really, the church didn't have to do a lot to teach us how to do it to each other, which was maybe the most horrifying part of all of it. Um, because we we girls policed each other and the boys policed us and the youth leaders policed us. And um, I mean, the stories you and I have talked about this ad nauseum over the years, we mm-hmm. shared stories, the things that we have experienced that are just breathtaking, not in a good way. Right. So besides purity culture, which is just a gem, and we could talk for four or five hours just about that one, and tell stories, we should do that sometime, get a bunch of women mm-hmm. Clarify um, everyone. I agree. <laughs> with I agree all of our stories, <laughs> um, but you know, I think even just patriarchy in general is has been a big one. I'm I'm a strong personality. I've always ended up in leadership roles, and the church doesn't really have space or room or know what to do with a woman like that. Um, I spent most of my life believing I was incapable of being a good Christian because unless I subverted this part of myself, because that's just not what Christianity asked of or expected from or accepted from me. It was not just disapproved of, it was actively sinful. And again, being a woman in leadership roles. Yes. And having a strong personality and insisting on using my voice and looking for ways to lead spiritually or, um, Even just, you know, outside of teaching Sunday school, there were a few accepted places for me, but they were not really the places I wanted to be.
0: Well, for Um, women, you know, Sunday school, worship team.
1: yep, youth group was okay, Um, which always the ins and outs of some of those rules kind of made me laugh. Um, The behavior management focus of my faith tradition has formed me and stayed with me I spent a lot of years really believing it was like my moral imperative to correct people's sin and to not only manage my own behavior but everyone else's that it like I gave people bibles as gifts um that's a whole thing about my adolescence <laughs> Um, but I, I really believed that I was, you know, doing the right thing by pointing out people's sin to them. And I just have really, uh, come to a different understanding of that. But, you know, I said at the beginning of this, that there's a lot of things I'm trying to hold on to from my faith tradition, things that were beautiful things that, um, I don't want to lose and let go of, even as I maybe never come back to the evangelical church. Um, I am still a part of the church at large and there are parts of, I think, many faith traditions that are worth exploring and examining in evangelical Christianity as well. Um, you know, I've never seen people show up like they do in the evangelical church for people who are hurting. Um, I am as you can hear in my voice moved to tears by the memories of the ways that the people I grew up with have loved me and have embraced me and have been in my life in such powerful ways. Um, There's the, I've, I've not seen anything like it. And that doesn't mean, of course, it doesn't exist in other faith traditions, but this is mine. And it's where I learned how to show up for people and how um, how to understand and know Jesus in this wide and rich and deep way. Um, and I'm just unwilling to let go of the Jesus that I came to know in this faith tradition. Um, and so I'm unwilling to throw it all out and say it's all bad because, um, I learned who he is here, uh, in this place that made me this church that made me that has also been what has been so painful in this whole process is that this is the place that made me who I am. And it, um, there's so much of it that I don't want to give up on. So when you ask, um, you know what what parts of your faith tradition have made you the answer is all of them some of them i'm trying to eat the meat and spit out the bones um and some of them i'm jettisoning completely
0: and some of them i want to cling to you and i experienced a lot of a lot of the same things when we were growing up um you know you evangelize you're talking about how you would give Bibles to people uh, as a <laughs> gift. And that is like, I would have, I would have like absolutely died if Abby Stevens gave me a Bible. I would have thought that was like, honestly, um, because I looked up to you and your your sister and just in love with your brother from the <laughs> time I could see. Um, but like, that was, that was our role. It felt like, it felt like if you weren't evangelizing, um, and I mean, that's what people do when they care, right? That's how, that's how I love people. I tell them about Jesus and I get them on my team. I mean, all of that, making fishers of men, um, gosh, because your, your experience, your experience, all we had, we had similar experiences, however, I've leaned in a different direction than you have leaned as you have deconstructed. Um, do you think, do you think personality has anything to do with the way that people, uh, kind of internalize this and process it as adults?
1: I'm sure that it does. I mean, I think about over the years I've been grateful to me and know a lot of people who are on this journey. Um, in whatever form it is, and whatever word we we call it, I don't call my particular experiences deconstruction. In part because I think that the church at large, when it hears that, it hears deconversion, and that has not been my experience or my desire. I know that it is for some people that it is a walking away from the faith entirely. For some people, for some people, it is turning to a different faith tradition. Um, for me i um i call it my journey of disillusionment um and i that's intentional um but i think that my personality has played a part at least in the questions that i have asked and in how i have come to understand my experiences what i want to keep what i want to get rid of um Or what I feel like I need to walk away from is maybe a better way to describe that. And so I don't know what those personality differences are, but a lot of people experience this in a lot of different ways. And it's really like, I mean, it's like being in the faith tradition, right? Like we all have different experiences, even inside it, even as you and I have had similar um, experiences and stories, the wounds that came from those things are different. Our, understanding of how to walk those things out and who we are as we walk those things out is different. Um, You know, you talked about evangelism and sharing the gospel uh, with people and the, the, the role that that plays, but even that people do differently. People have a different view of how that should happen. And some people, (laughs) sit on a shuttle bus between the parking lot and the airport and they want to lead you to Jesus strangers you know there are those people I was never that person that was never that my personality is just not that kind of personality there were times where I absolutely believed that there was something sinful in me that was keeping me from that that I was supposed to be that kind of person because there were certain kinds of personalities and and experiences like that that were held up and sort of Oohed and awed over and prayed over. And, you know, those were the people brought up on stage on a Sunday to talk about this experience that I had in Walmart. Um, and I know people for whom those are incredibly real experiences, that they have true connections with people because I've seen it happen, because I have known people who I've met this person in Walmart and you're never going to believe. And they weep about this conversation that they had, you know, looking at whether they got all-purpose flour or bread flour. And they... Um, and they are just broken by this moment, this interaction that they had with someone. So, um, but that has just never been me. And so I think in the same way that inside a faith tradition, our personalities lead us in different directions and we experience those things differently. The same happens in deconstruction that there are people for whatever reason that just move in different directions and move through it differently.
0: Well, yeah, this Yeah, letting go of the certainty of uncertainty. Moving on, how did you see yourself within the evangelical community during your childhood and adolescence? Did you did your identity feel closely tied to your faith?
1: Yes, I was the poster girl. I I don't want to overuse this phrase, but it's hard to overstate, but it is hard to overstate how closely tied my identity was to my faith tradition. I mean, I, I, I taught BBS and I taught Sunday school and I was on the worship team and I was, uh, 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 I attended every youth group in town. I mean, quite truthfully, I think there were three or four youth groups of which I was like a formal official member. I attended all of activities and was a leader in each of these different youth groups from different, you know, some were Baptist, some were Pentecostal, some were, didn't matter because, well, I mean, you're from a as well. So, you know, that dynamic, um, I organized, see you at the pole. I had, I led a Bible study on Wednesday mornings. Um, these are mostly in my adolescence. Um, my nickname in high school, this is a true story was church lady, From Dana Carvey's character on SML. (laughs) And I was so innocent. Which you shouldn't be watching. I wasn't allowed to watch it. I had no idea what they were talking about. I thought it was complimentary. (laughs) Oh, and I think it was affectionate because it was friends who (laughs) called me this. But these are the people I gave Bibles to. I mean, I did. As like graduation gifts, as birthday gifts, I bought little personal. I mean, I was just the worst. And I look back at that girl and she was so sincere. All of it was sincere. I meant every minute of it. <laughs> I feel so bad. Oh, for my friends who were getting really cool gifts from other people and I wrapped up Bibles. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, but very sweet. Um
1: sure, sure. We'll go with sweet. Very sweet.
0: <laughs> um okay. So talk to me about um these youth groups. I mean, you were in your, okay. What what year, what years were you in youth group and what years were you leading it?
1: Uh, well, I graduated from high school in 97. So I was in youth group from, I mean, I don't know what age, 12, you start going to youth group. So, you know, all through the nineties, I, so the fashion was on point too, by the way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, back in the day of like, well, the satanic Panic. Right in the 80s, I remember um, Sunday school lessons about backmasking. We listened to Hotel California played backwards. I will never forget that Sunday school lesson as long as I live. We were all just looking at each other. What's happening right now? What were they supposed Uh, to have been saying? So, well, backmasking is real. It's a real um, technique that they used on different audio tracks. And they would, if you played like the tape backwards, you could hear a message underneath. And so they were different. You can, there's, I think there's a Wikipedia page that has like a bunch of the recorded back-masked messages. And some of them were quite atrocious. Some of them were totally harmless. Some of them were just ridiculous. But the concept was, and this is, again, was in the, you know, like mid to late 80s. Um, I was too young, probably in the mid 80s, but in the late 80s and then early 90s, it was part of the satanic panic that's that, that, that um, there were these messages, these subliminal messages that you were being um, swayed by in secular music and so you played it backwards and you could hear I can't remember what any of the messages were and some of them were I think truly trying to be provocative and frighten all of the Christians and um,
0: which and is so probably
1: were... I mean which is probably why we're here, which is probably <laughs> probably it's the backmasking that got me. <laughs> Um, but I mean, I remember, you know, uh, the, the big thing in the youth group was like, you brought all your secular CDs to the front or your secular magazines and you brought it to the front and you heaved it on the altar during the altar call, usually with wailing and gnashing your teeth. And that was your repentance from your secular worldly ways. And then oftentimes there was a bonfire that would follow and they'd take everything out and burn it. I remember always being like so sad because I didn't have any I didn't have any secular CDs. I You had listen. Bibles.
0: You were giving had me Bibles. Bibles.
1: <laughs> I had Kathy Tricoli CDs and Amy Grant oh my gosh. and I mean some Carmen, DC Talk for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Audio A, Stephen Curtis Chapman, the all of them. All of them. The classics. The newsboys, yes. Yeah. hmm and so I didn't have any secular CDs to throw out. No myself. Nirvana. No Nirvana. I liked Nirvana, but I was only listening to that on the radio. Thank you. On my, my mixed tapes that I would make when I hit record on my tape. And,
0: and put, pl- yeah. 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 Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that's wild. So that was, they would have a bonfire and just, and just yeah, burn, just burn all of the, all your cosmopolitans and your teen vogue.
1: Mm-hmm. It was very virtue signaling-y before virtue signaling was a thing.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and yeah, so much of that, just I laugh at and get a kick out of those moments of just like, what were we doing? But again, like there was so much about it that was beautiful. My parents had a weekly Bible study at our house. I mean, every year forever. And um, it was on Wednesday nights. And it was the same people who are still some of the closest family friends that we have. And they are so dear to me. I had a chance when I was home a while back to be um, at a gathering that they were all at. And it was just like coming home. These people are, these are the people of my heart. These are the people who raised me outside of my parents. Um, I mean, your parents, part of, you know, a group of people that I have known and loved and who have loved me and poured into my life um, in ways that I just can't even begin to talk about without crying. Um, but could never begin to repay or pay back. They were my biggest cheerleaders. They were at every event. They were at my graduation. They, um, the baby showers and I babysat all of their kids, all of their kids, including maybe you at some point. (laughs) Um, I, you know, we went camping and they took us to the lake and we went boating and there were trips to Cornerstone and Carmen concerts and conferences and lock-ins. And these were people who weren't paid to be in my life, who um, to this day are just, they are, they are home to me in so many ways um, for all of the goofy ridiculousness that my 90s evangelical Christianity brought into my life or into the lives of other people as such as it were. <laughs> um there was so much that is um still really beautiful
0: to me um that wasn't
1: goofy and wasn't silly.
0: Can you talk about your experience with um with with doubt or questioning?
1: Yeah, I think you know, even in the midst of all of my adolescence that was so deeply centered in evangelical Christianity and, and church, um, there was a lot that just, I describe it like it just felt like I was wearing clothes that didn't quite fit right. And there were moments that wasn't constant, but there were these moments. I remember one Sunday, there were some kids going on a mission trip and they were called up front to be prayed for. And I had just started my first job. And I remember just thinking, and this is so ungenerous of me, but I just remember thinking these kids are going to spend 99% of their time with each other, with a bunch of other Christian kids on this mission trip in a foreign country. They're going to do like a couple street plays and these people are going to maybe pray, I guess the prayer. And then I don't know, or if anyone's going to talk to these people again, we're going to, they're going to come home and. Tell us about all these people who got saved, but we're not really going to know if they got saved because I don't know if they, I mean, maybe they just wanted to talk to the Americans. Um, And 99% of the time they're going to spend with each other in their hotels or in their training. And here I am at 16 years old working (laughs) coach house gifts in Quincy Place Mall. It was my first, um, my first real job. So great. I know. Great memories. And I'm going to be working with people who maybe don't actually know Jesus, but I'm going to be with them, you know, three nights a week or whatever. And no one's praying for me. No one is, I'm developing relationships with these people. I babysat for their kids. I babysat for everyone's kids. Um, But I got to know these people. I worked with them for a couple years. And I just remember these moments of just like, something doesn't quite fit right you know I'd listen to these messages about purity um, and um, have my own history of um, sexual abuse and thinking like who's talking? no one's talking to me about this and these moments there were these bumps and I learned quickly that there are certain questions I was allowed to ask I could ask what a bible verse meant I could question certain doctrines or certain theologies, but there were also questions that were off limits, questions that were dangerous to ask, not because anyone told me that they were, but because I watched how I was allowed to be present. So I, to take a step back, I was allowed to be present. I was at this Bible study. I didn't sit upstairs with the kids. I sat downstairs with the adults. I was in grown up church almost all the time. Um, and I was around the adult conversations often enough to hear how people were talked about. Um, and I, I don't want to malign anyone who I may have overheard. Um, I, I, I don't mean to in any way um, cast aspersions on, you know, any of Any of the people who were involved in the conversations, but I overheard the way people were talked about when they asked certain kinds of questions. Can I believe this? Can I believe that? Um, What if the Bible doesn't mean this? What if that's not the correct interpretation? There were some places where it was dangerous to ask those questions, Mm -hmm. and those people were dealt with in ways that I witnessed being harsh and unforgiving and um you were no longer on the inside you were no longer someone who was worth respecting or looking up to you might be allowed to stay in community um but you were the unhealthy one that was always a great word to use um I think today it still is a great word to use unhealthy and that just sort of means well we don't hate them but also they're not great and um I get kind of a kick out of sometimes listening to, you know, Christians in particular talk about cancel culture today. And I don't need to take this political, but I mean, for heaven's sake, I've been watching Christians do it to ourselves, to each other, my entire (laughs) life. Um, We come from a tradition that has perfected it. And I don't, if we're being honest, I I don't know how you look at this. I, I grew up listening. I grew up hearing people say, you know, the church is the only place where we shoot our wounded. There's a reason that we have said that about the church. That was long before cancel culture was a thing. Um, Because, man, you can be terribly cruel and unforgiving when people step outside of the boundaries that we have, the acceptable boundaries that we have put in place for them. And I have been party to that. I have been complicit in that. You know, when I talk about myself as an adolescent uh, and the poster girl for Christianity, that was part of it as well was my ability. And it's how I know it existed because I did that to people. I know that Mm -hmm. I did that to people. I know the names of those people. I was very good at that.
0: Man, I'm thinking back to my own high school career and all of the people that I, oh my gosh, just like oh god it's so cringy to think about like all of the things that i said and did and like expected and like felt (laughs) entitled to and just the any of you girls from high school if you're listening i am so sorry that i was so frigid a frigid (laughs) (laughs) just oh god just so yeah. cold and, and, but like in the name of Jesus,
1: <laughs> right. There was a lot of self-righteousness. Oh man. Uh, a lot of entitlement. I thought, I think I thought that I could like Bible all of the struggle out of me or them maybe like I just beat them with it. makes me think of the well, the movie saved that scene with Mandy Moore when she screams at her supposed friend she throws a Bible at her and hits her right in the middle of the back. She's the friend is walking away and she says, I am filled with the love of Christ. That was me. (laughs) Right, me far too often. Right. And wondering why. Yeah. Why people don't like me or Jesus. Right.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. Oh my goodness. Were there any challenges or conflicts you faced in reconciling your personal identity? Um, with the expectations of the evangelical community?
1: There were so many. Um, I shared earlier the story about my first job and that moment of just like, why why aren't we praying for the people who are working every day? Why are we only praying for people who are going to the mission field? Not that I mind that we prayed for those people, Um, but it always seemed like there was a disconnect between what we said was important and then the actions that we elevated for people um and then like I said earlier you know I was um sexually abused when I was young and then um not a lot of people knew that in part because I sat in youth group and I listened to these purity messages and I could not reconcile uh, my own experiences with this teaching about being chewed up dirty gum and wadded up, stepped on paper and figuring out how all of that worked. And I didn't want to ask questions because nobody talked about it. Um, nobody ever mentioned, you know, hey, if something was done to you, this is different. Um, not that I think the message is good otherwise, but, but that that was never part of the conversation. And then Um, And this is something I haven't talked much about ever in public, Um, but I had an experience many years later when I was um, a teenager. And I remember um, we were at a church event. It was a Y night. And um, I remember overhearing two men talking. They were talking about this is a blast from the past, tail hook, which was a big scandal in the military it was a big like convention, I think, of military branches called Tailhook. And there were something like a hundred women who and men, I think there were a few men who were sexually assaulted um over the course of this like weekend or week, this convention. And the sort of party line that that kind of came out in conservative circles which i was a part of um was this idea of well what did they expect and i remember overhearing two men from church say out loud um as i was waiting to play foosball um something like you know i like i don't really feel bad for them these feminists wanted equality and equal pay and they wanted to join the military and what did they expect um and then when i was I, I later experienced something quite traumatic, um, an assault? <laughs> um, I remember hearing those voices in my head. And so there were so many moments. Uh, I mean, I was in my 30s before I ever told anyone about that because I just remember thinking, well, what did I expect? That was the overriding voice that I heard was, well, what did you expect? And I have more stories, uh, that I won't even, I won't even go into moments where it began to become evident to me long before I dreamt of walking away from the church. That there was some disconnect somewhere that there was something that either I was not right. Like there was no way for me to be right. And in the church or That there was something fundamentally wrong with some of what I had learned and been taught about who Jesus was, is, um, about the way that the church was supposed to be in the world, about how this faith was supposed to form me and shape me. And for many years after that, I mean, I really believed I was just wrong. And I needed to shape up and I needed to shut up and I needed to force myself into those boxes and stop asking those dangerous questions and stop opening those doors and stop wrestling with the things that I needed to be wrestling with, which was why I was in my 30s before some of these stories I ever told anyone, like any human ever heard some of these things for me because that was just I couldn't safely stay in the church and have, I I couldn't have both. And so one had to go, one had to be shut up. One had to somehow go away. Um, And because the church was so central to who I was, I couldn't imagine ever leaving that behind. And so I just towed the party line. I doubled down in so many ways. Um, And then I also found, you know, in a lot of ways, it was, leaking out of me in ways that I was unaware of until much, much later, that that it just wasn't sustainable.
0: When you describe leaking out, can you give an example?
1: Well, uh like when I went to college, um I stopped cold turkey going to church. I just was not involved at all. And that was a huge culture shock for me. Um, but I couldn't make myself go. It was like I was free. I lied about it. I I routinely would speak to my parents and lie about the church service that I had been to because I had not been to church and I had no intention of going to church and I wanted nothing to do with it. We were required to go. I went to a Christian, a private Christian college, and uh, we were required to do chapel periodically. Um, I think two or three days a week we had to go and I did everything I could most of the time to tune that out. And so um, I started drinking in college, um, quite a lot and had no concept that this was sort of, uh, at the time I had no awareness that this was that sort of disconnect leaking out of me of just like, I couldn't continue, um, to, to toe that party line and to uphold that status quo in a way, um, that was healthy. And so I just became supremely um, unhealthy in my attempts to manage that.
0: So that kind of leads into my next question for you. What were the key factors or experiences, maybe you can get a little more specific, that led you to question and eventually kind of dissect your faith within uh, Christianity as we knew it? I,
1: there were, I think, lots of small moments, um, as I have shared throughout the years, but I, I worked for a church for a few years and it was a really wonderful church and a, a good experience. And yet there were moments in that, that set of years where I really began to sense that my, questions were more than just questions and that the disconnect was more um, than just something I could slap a band-aid on. I just started to kind of begin to see it for what it was. Uh, I, I, I I, think I said earlier, I don't generally call my journey deconstruction. I call it disillusionment. There's a quote by one of my favorite theologians, um, Barbara taylor Brown. And she, this really helps to articulate, kind of helps me to articulate my journey. She says disillusionment is the loss of illusion about ourselves, about the world, about God. And while it's almost always painful, it's not a bad thing to lose the lies we have mistaken for truth. Disillusioned, we come to understand that God does not conform to our expectations. We glimpse our own relative size in the universe and see that no human being can say who God should be or how God should act. We review our requirements of God and recognize them as our own fictions, our own frail shelters against the vast night sky. Disillusioned, we find out what is not true and are set free to seek what is, if we dare. And that has helped me to articulate this because I, I feel a lot like this. It is just this journey of getting rid of illusions and things that I believed to be true so that I can hold on to the things that I think really are true and, and discover them. Um, and I think a lot of that relates to that certainty syndrome. the, the um, One of those thought ending cliches, these things that we just sort of trot out as certainties to help keep us from the cognitive dissonance that I think our faith requires us to live in. And, um, you know, a lot of complicated things can be true at the same time and i don't want to ignore those for easy answers and i i think that evangelical christianity um the faith tradition that i experience and as i experience it just does a uniquely poor job of setting us up for those for those uncertainties i think it hands us certainties and tells us we can cling to those certainties and i just don't believe that any longer um and so while there were I think there were not just there wasn't just one moment there were lots of small things that I just couldn't ignore any longer and so um I decided that I needed to figure out how to open my hand and let go of some of those things and ask those questions why can't this be true why is this faith tradition bad um, not because I needed to you know go out and be a sweaty heathen and just um, I think sometimes that's the sort of picture that people get in their minds like I don't know why it always seems like everyone thinks you just want to just like go have sex with everyone yeah. like that's the de- I mean that's the story I hear all yeah. the time like yeah. oh no you just want to live in sexual sin okay I don't have you talked to someone on this journey ever <laughs> Because I don't think you have, mm-hmm. because I have never heard that story. I've never heard that story. Um, not once in all the people I know. And so, um, but I did have to allow myself to step into fear, into what I was afraid of, which is getting it wrong, because getting it wrong had such high stakes for such a long time and just decide, I'm just going to have to try getting it wrong and see if maybe somewhere in there, I might finally get it right.
0: Can you pinpoint a specific moment or period when you realized a shift was taking place?
1: I know it's a bit of a cliche, but the 2016 election was uh, a huge moment for me in that that was when I realized that there might not be any way to return. I was already on the journey, if you will. I was already processing these ideas, but that for me became the linchpin moment of, I'm not sure I can ever go back. Um, And I, again, I don't mean to make this political, um, but I was raised in a faith tradition that had all of the hallmarks of the things that I've already talked about, but also had set itself up as the chaplain of the Republican Party or the conservative party, I should say of the United States. And I was taught that that was a good thing. And I, again, wasn't explicit. Nobody sat me down and said that. But I many times heard people say things like, I don't think Democrats can be Christians. Um, Whether those were all serious or whether those were jokes, I don't, couldn't pretend to know. But I heard that. I heard those ideas. And there was this political alignment that seemed to be expected that I could not, I just, I couldn't um it felt like it felt like such a deep betrayal and that sounds so ridiculous to say out loud that an election could cause that sense so I think that that election it revealed to me things that were non-negotiable for me in my belief system and things that were apparently not non-negotiable for the faith tradition that I came from. In fact, it appeared to me that I was not welcomed in that faith tradition any longer. If I couldn't accept those things, um, it not only were the things that were (laughs) reprehensible to me, Mm -hmm. such a strong word, but, um, not only were those things not seen to be reprehensible and I'm, I'm not pointing at any one person. Um, And this is just how it appeared to me, but it appeared as though those things were embraced and loved Mm -hmm. and I didn't and still don't know really what to do with that. I felt a lot like, I don't know. I don't, where did I come from? how did I get here? How, who, what?
0: Like, who so... are these people?
1: Who are these men? Betrayal. Yes. And, and disconcerting. And I've used the word heartbreaking because that is the word that most adequately describes what that was like, because it was heartbreaking. It felt, I was completely blindsided. I was so Shocked. And now I look at it all these years later and I think, I'm not sure why I was shocked. I don't think I should have been shocked. I think I should have seen it. It's part of the reason that I continue to think that the church and I, the evangelical church and I have probably parted ways for good because I think I should have seen it. I think I should have seen the ways in which so much of what I had learned was Undergirded by these ideas, these political partisan ideas. Um, And I don't mean to indicate that the people I was surrounded with were political or partisan because they by and large weren't. It was not something we talked a lot about. Um, But the ideals and ideas embraced in that election appeared to me. And I think that statistics and and, and studies that have come since bear out were very deeply held by the faith tradition that I was walking and walking out of and now people are saying it out loud and that's and not just saying it out loud but embracing it in out loud and in public and I continue to struggle to look at my faith and understand how these two things align um and I I believe that there are people who look at the same faith and really do see alignment. I don't understand how, and I'm fully aware, I'm fully aware that the same people look at my particular journey, my particular faith, and probably feel the same way. I'm not sure how to circle that square for any of us, but that moment for me was a turning point as far as just realizing I can't belong here. I don't belong here. I'm not welcome here. Um, And unless I align, I will never be welcome here again.
0: Were there particular theological or doctrinal points that played a larger role in your decision to leave and step away?
1: This is interesting to me. There are a lot of theological doctrinal points that I don't currently believe or that I was taught in in evangelical christianity that i think that that it gets wrong but it's really not those disagreements um that have primarily caused this disruption for me um i you want to argue with me about like you know substitutionary atonement or something and that's fine we don't need to agree on that (laughs) um like if you believe in you know infant baptism and i don't okay Um, so there are places where I, I fundamentally disagree, I think with things that I probably did not used to disagree with. Um, but I think it's the way for me, the, the American evangelical church has doubled down on, um, the ugliest parts, um, the misogyny, the patriarchy, the racism, um, and just refused any sort of repentance refused I don't understand or empathy yes and I don't understand why the church needs Jesus if it doesn't have anything to repent of um I think it would be so powerful in this country if the tradition that I came from which is you know next to Catholicism perhaps be well and in this country um the most powerful group of religious people in this country and said we want to repent of these sins that have harmed so many people and as a as a, a faith tradition and i understand american evangelical christianity has all kinds of denominations and that would be there's not just one person who gets to decide this we don't have a pope um but that has just not happened. You know, the largest denominations in this country have done just the opposite. They have hidden all kinds of sexual abuse and then have the audacity to point at the Catholic church or to point it anywhere else. Um, when they're hiding pastors and shuttling them around them around the country and, mm-hmm. um, and have refused to take steps to redress, you know, uh, racial harm and to, to desegregate Sunday mornings and, and, and to renounce it's the doubling down on the ugliest parts. I think the anger and the cruelty with which that has happened, I'm fundamentally and just done with the gatekeeping and the purity tests. And like, I am not interested in you telling me what I have to believe to be a Christian in good standing any longer. I'm not interested in gatekeeping those things and not allowing people to question those things, myself included. Um, And if people land in different places, that's one thing, but we have eradicated the right to doubt. And I think those, those sort of big fundamental systemic things are the reasons as opposed to any particular doctrinal or theological belief that I can't square.
0: Yeah. I like what you said. Um, It reminds me of, um, like just being a child and feeling like you're in trouble for doing the wrong thing. Um, but honestly, just needing to figure out which direction you need to take, but you're chastised for that. Um, out of love, of course, always, uh, mm-hmm. but harmful. So you left, uh, you left the church. You kind of dabbled in leaving when you were in college. Mm-hmm. But, but you have left, as you've said, uh, this the the church in general. um, after leaving, how did you go about exploring different spiritual paths or beliefs?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, i haven't I haven't left the faith. I know that for some people, that is a different journey, and people are leaving um faith in Jesus entirely, um Christianity entirely. I have not um done that i'm not um i have found that he is just my one inevitability and i am all in um i am all in on jesus um his life death and resurrection are the things that i hold tightly and so the rest of it i am um allowing myself to question And so I haven't really, I have left evangelical faith, but I haven't left faith. And so for me, it's really been a matter of deciding if any church association, any denominational or faith tradition association is what is next for me. And I I don't know yet if that means moving to a different faith tradition, if that means still trying to pick the bones clean of the one that I am trying to um, salvage outside the church. I don't know yet.
0: This disillusionment this that you're talking about, some people calling it deconstruction, some people completely walking away, uh, some people are viewing it as... Um, they're romanticized you're romanticizing Mm -hmm. about this I mean you talk about the families that you grew up with what relationships do you feel like you can and have and will continue to take from this experience um into this new like reality or this new version of life that you're living um
1: I mean there have been some friendships um I mean, friendship with friendships with you and um, uh, our mutual group of people that have sustained me. I've got several groups of friends that have also been on similar journeys that um, I have really leaned into Um, all people from the same faith tradition, uh, all from churches that I have also attended. Um, But I also have gotten to know people on the internet, which is such a strange way to meet and make friends, and yet I think mean, you know, I guess it is the 21st century. But there is a, a community of people. Um, most of us have not met face to face. Some of us have met one or two of, them. and um, we have just an opportunity to send each other encouragement or to say, "I'm really struggling with this today," and you know, I have not. And I've been really grateful. There are lots of relationships in my life that are more difficult now because of this journey of mine. um, And that have really been a struggle. And I have lost very few relationships that are truly lost to me. And I'm really grateful for that, that both I and the other people on the other side that are struggling to understand each other have continued to try. I know that that's not easy. And I know that I am the one who, at least on the in the appearance has changed. Um, It appears that I am the one who has changed the most. Um, And I have, I've changed my mind about a lot of things. And so I know that that's not always been easy for those people to continue to love me. But those people that I talked about that just feel like home to me, um, both family and friends have continued to that, even as they have struggled to understand what I've gone through. Um, And there is also an element of that. We talked about the last time we saw each other and talked um, where I have learned, you know, I spent my childhood and adolescence listening to pastors tell me that I should not be afraid to, uh, I shouldn't be afraid of the the judgment of men that, um, the approval of men was not what I was supposed to seek that. Uh, and that was always translated to me as like, you're going to be, you're going to be the only pure virgin in college and everyone's going to make fun of you for it. Or you're going to be the only one who doesn't drink and everyone's going to make fun of you for it. Or you're going to be the only one who doesn't cuss and everyone's going to make fun of you for it. Um, those were the three big ones always. And, but it's okay because you're not seeking the approval of man. You're seeking God's approval. And what I have learned is that (laughs) I have never once in my life cared about the approval of those people, the approval of those people who have been home to me, um, and who struggle to understand me today and who I know struggle with what appear to be just totally out of the blue, new beliefs, um, family who have struggled to understand this journey for me. Those are the people whose approval is painful for me to lose. Um, it was always them. It was never some (laughs) worldly heathen sinner out there, uh, whose approval I was striving to keep or to, um, a choir. It was, I was the poster girl. I was the, the one I, all of the grandfathers wanted their grandsons to marry Abby because she was the good Christian girl who was in the worship team and on the stage and leading the prayers. And, um. and I've, I have struggled and hurt and ached over realizing that that's the approval that I stand to lose and have likely lost in a lot of cases. I don't mean that I've lost love. Um, I don't think love has ever been on the line. I think that all of those people still love me, but whether they continue to respect me or um, <laughs> like me, I don't know. And that's something else I've had to learn how to hold with kind of an open hand. <laughs> um, that approval. And that's been really hard
0: because it does for so long, at least in my case, it did feel so conditional. Um, And
1: I think knowing too, (laughs) I sat in those rooms and was in those conversations where we sort of lovingly condescended about people who were struggling and people who had fallen away or we had all the words. Uh, backsliding, backsliding, mm-hmm. fallen away. They're just struggling, and they became objects of pity and scorn sometimes. And we discussed how to fix them. And uh, again, I'm condemning myself in all of this because I sat in those conversations and participated. And it's right, same. How I know they happen, um, and knowing that those are happening about me um, is difficult. And I have just had to let people be wrong and let people get me wrong um and embrace the people who have just said oh well i know you and i love you and i know your heart and so okay this is your journey and have not batted an eye or blinked or missed a step those relationships are so precious to me with people who have just said okay this is this is your journey and this is uh what you're experiencing and have taken me seriously Um, and have also not let it disrupt their view of me or our relationship with each other. Um, and there have been some of those as well that have just been nonplussed by any of it because I'm still Abby and they're still whoever they are in my life. And that's what matters. Um, and they love me and they know me and those have been really, really important as well. And they're, uh have been a lot of those. And a lot of people who, like I has, I said, have just, I know probably have struggled and have continued to love me. Um, and I'm grateful for that too, even though I'm sure that there's just, they're just thinking, what, what the hell, (laughs) what, what the hell's happening with Abby, um, and have not withdrawn their love. And so that has also been really, really precious, even as I know they don't get it and that's okay
0: to have even had that as you know a teenager would have i mean been kind of altering for me i i feel like to have had um like the freedom to go on a journey that was unexpected by those who were pouring into us allowing that because it ultimately is our journey but the constant uh the constant message of of God's will. This isn't God's will for you. Um, that was, that was something that was difficult. Um, and I, I remember just being a teenager, just wanting, I want permission to fail. I like, please, please let me, please let me fail. Please let me learn from my own mistakes. Please stop shielding me from it. Um, and although it was all very well intended, I became resentful of that. Um, so I think what you're saying is, incredibly important. Mm -hmm. In what ways did your perception of God evolve or devolve during and after your faith or after this disillusionment?
1: As I said earlier, Jesus is my one inevitability in this life. And I am as committed to that today as I was when I was four Um, and that hasn't changed and it has been the one constant in all of this, but my faith has never felt as alive and real as it does today because it feels like a faith that is free instead of a faith that is afraid to get it wrong. I am allowed to try to get it right. I used to believe in a God who needed us to get it right. Like that was a requirement was that yeah. we said the prayer right, right? And you say it over and over again. And then what if he can't hear me if I only say it in my head? So now I have to say it out loud. From the time I became a Christian, that fear was embedded in it. um, And it was so arresting to me in so many ways. And that, I wouldn't say it's gone because I still find those moments of like, can I ask this question? Can I, can I? Is that too far? Like, is God going to be done with me? Is he going to be like, okay, that's the one that sends you right into the fiery pit. I have to pause in those moments and just like, he's either big enough for me to get it wrong or he's not God. Um, He has to be. And that doesn't mean I don't care about getting it right. It simply means that I can ask the question or perhaps decide that what I was taught was maybe wrong that somewhere along the way in 2023 I or the faith tradition I come from hasn't come to a hundred percent clarity on every single truth about this mysterious God that exists and that somewhere in there there's room for us to be wrong and for us to explore where maybe um maybe we can still get it right and so we set up you know these dichotomies of rightness or wrongness or to determine like our level of how right we are. But I am finding such freedom and just opting out of that cycle and saying, okay, well, I'm going to try it and see if I get it wrong. Um, and I'm going to trust that God is big enough to catch me. If I fall, he's big enough to correct me if I need it. And that maybe he's big enough for us to get some of it wrong. Cause I think probably we get a lot of it wrong. Um, And I think to opt, (laughs) to decide to get it wrong on the side of freedom, on the side of grace, on the side of what allows people, myself, my neighbors to thrive, to experience love, um, like if we're, if we have a, a half 50, 50 chance of getting it wrong, I would like to err on the side of an expansiveness and an error on the side of something that is rich and deep and mysterious and bigger than I can imagine, as opposed to erring on the side of, well, I'd rather be safe than sorry.
0: Yeah. Like, That's a beautiful way to look at it. Okay. How did your self-perception change as you transitioned away from this. I mean
1: I was lost to myself. I I just felt adrift. I I didn't know who I was. Uh, my entire identity was wrapped up in not my faith, but my faith tradition. It was wrapped up in being the poster girl. It was wrapped up in in leading the Bible studies and wrapped up in in the way people viewed me the way I was seen and respected. I mean, you know, I said I I had been on staff at a church for a while and it was wrapped up in this identity of like, I was the church girl. Um, I remember reading Rachel held Evans work for the first time and she described her adolescence and her, I was just like, I could write every single one of those words are, could be mine. All of it. I wrote Bible studies for an entire church. I, I led them. I, I, it was just, it was just devastating. It was obliterating. It was, I just felt completely wiped off the map. Like, I, I don't know who am I, if it's not my job to like manage everybody else's sin, first of all. um, If I don't have the right conservative political views, can I even be a Christian? I didn't know here I am in my, 30s, late 30s. um when i finally start asking these questions I'm just like am i even allowed? i don't know. i don't I, it it was untethering in the worst ways and also it was freeing and it felt terrifying but also right. i am the person always i when i read, you know, in the gospels and Peter and and the the disciples are with Jesus in the middle of a storm and he steps out of the boat or he walks to them. I'm sorry, on the water. And he calls for one of them to get out of the boat. And Peter's just like, I'll do it. That's me. That's always been me. I do these reckless things. I am not risk averse in a lot of ways. (laughs) I, this journey has felt like that, like, Oh, yep. Okay. I'm going to hop out of the boat. And then like, what the hell did I just do? I'm drowning here. And yet knowing I was supposed to get out of the boat and I think I was supposed to get out of the boat and I finally don't feel like I'm drowning anymore, but it took a while to get there.
0: So as you look to the future, how do you envision the continued evolution of your spiritual beliefs now?
1: I mean, I think this is a process I would like to see continue. Um, Leo Tolstoy said truth like gold is to be obtained not by its growth but by washing away from it all that is not gold and so i think that's what i'd like to do continue to wash away what's not gold continue to rid myself of illusions i want to complicate my thinking and um complicate my understanding of my faith complicate my understanding of scripture um Not because I think it needs to be complicated, but because I think for too long I have accepted a simple version that allowed me to live with no cognitive dissonance, to not understand things um, in their fullness, um, to just not ask questions. And I think I have a lot of years of questions to start asking. Safely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about what you would say. What would you say if you were at the front of a church? What would you say to people who are still a part of the body of the church?
1: Um, I think that I would start by saying, talk to us. Talk to us. We're not scary people and we are um, not dangerous. And there are ridiculous teachers out there with books that they're writing about what this process is. And, you know, I've read some of them and I've seen some of those teachings and heard the pastor say the things and um just none of it holds water when you know people who are walking through this. And so I think the first thing I would say is talk to us um with curiosity, not with judgment, not to fix us or to bring us back into the fold. But allow yourselves to imagine what you might have to learn from someone who's asking questions that you're not asking or who's seeing the world in in your faith in a way that you've never seen it. Um, Allow yourself to be curious about what Jesus might have to teach you uh, or where he might show up in places that you've never ventured um, or have been told that you shouldn't venture because those are some of the places where I am. And I don't mean physical places necessarily. And I think the other thing would be to be gentle (laughs) in how you speak about this in public. So not just because we're listening and we hear whether or not we can come back. We hear whether or not the church will ever be a place that we're welcome or want to be ever again. We hear your judgment. We see it on social media. We see the casual cruelty on Twitter um, or the um dogmatic contempt uh i've received so much contempt at the hands of other professing christians some of them even people i know although that has been rare and i'm very grateful for that um that i at least that i have actually heard it or seen it um now maybe it's i'm spoken of contemptuously behind my back i don't know but um but it's been very rare, thankfully, from people I know, from strangers all the time. Um, self-righteous people with "daughter of the king" usually in their bio on Twitter, um, <laughs> which I'm not on anymore because of <laughs> because of that. But and I don't mean that everyone with "daughter of their king" on their bio is bad. I just mean that those <laughs> those have been the people those have been the people most likely to just be awful. And it's like, they don't think we're listening. It's like, they don't think we're really human. And I know some of that is by virtue of being online, but, um, but even out loud in spaces, I have heard things. And just thinking, do you know that people who are walking that journey are listening to you when you're up there in the pulpit? Cause I don't think you do. Uh, and I think you knew if you knew that it was, you know, whoever who sits in your small group every week that is, secretly having these conversations and having these struggles, you might speak differently. Um, So I think those are two things that I would say.
0: If you could offer advice to someone who is currently undergoing kind of a shift in their faith, uh, maybe it doesn't look the way that it used to. What would you, uh, what would you want that advice to be?
1: I think my advice would be, the biggest piece of advice is you're going to have to let go of your fear of getting it wrong. If your faith tradition is anything like mine, that I think will be central for almost everyone because it is so ingrained in us. Um, And this comes not just from my experience, but from hundreds and hundreds of conversations. I routinely at least once a week, get messages on social media from people I know, and sometimes from people I don't know, thanking me for, and they say this, being brave enough to say these things out loud on social media, um, because they're terrified that they have the same questions, they have the same struggles, they're seeing the same things, and they know the risk and the cost of saying it out loud. You're going to have, you don't have to say it out loud. That's not required. But if this is a journey you're on, um, figuring out how to handle that fear of getting it wrong. Um, And then I think the other thing would be don't do it alone. Um, I don't know anyone who has walked this path who is unwilling to walk it with someone else. It feels a little bit like AA in that way. Like I would like to walk, I don't care if you're a stranger um, because I was alone when I started this journey and walked a lot of it alone or I I maybe didn't have to, but I didn't know that I could talk to anybody. And I think the last thing is that you're going to have to be prepared to grieve the loss and that has been difficult to figure out how to do to grieve this thing. That was so central, but I think those are the three pieces of advice I would give anybody who is walking this road. Um, And I guess, you know, the last one is, if you think you're walking this road, you're probably already on it. And I don't know anyone who has ever just decided to believe something. That's just not how belief works. We're not just like, oh, I'm going to believe this. I'm going to believe the sky is green. Try it. it. I don't know. It doesn't work. So if you're already asking these questions, you're probably already on this journey and trying to pretend like you believe something you don't believe. Um, I mean, I did it for a lot of years, especially as I felt it unraveling and I sort of felt it. I just scrambled to pick it all back up and like hold it all back in and get my beliefs back into line. And I thought if I did all the right things, it would make my beliefs come back online, you know, like a reset button. And that's just not how it worked. Um, so if you think that you're on this journey, you probably are, which means you have some choices to make. You can continue to try to keep it all in line and white knuckle it, or you can embrace the journey and take those next steps.
0: Can you kind of sum up or what would be the one piece of wisdom that you have gained through this that you would like to share?
1: you don't have to be certain and you don't have to accept the premise of the purity tests and the gatekeeping questions. Um, you just don't have to, you don't have to acquiesce to those things any longer. Um, You know, you can't believe that real Christians can't believe that. Okay. And then I'm going to choose to believe what I believe. And continue to be a real Christian in spite of the attempt to gatekeep that, um, in spite of the, you know, I, the purity test questions are a big one. Um, what do you believe about? Insert your pet cause here, your pet theology here, um, whether it's, again, penal substitutionary atonement or abortion. Like, it, it can r- run the gamut. But they're gatekeeping questions. And you just don't have, you just don't have to you don't have to engage. You don't have to accept that, um, as being the thing that like you're allowed to get it wrong. (laughs) Um, and God's big enough for us to get it wrong. And if your journey is one that where you are continuing to walk with him, but away from your faith tradition, or whether your journey is one where you are walking away from faith altogether, um, or whether your journey is one where you're walking into a new faith tradition. Um, you don't have to, you are free to just be wrong, to get it wrong, to screw it up. Um, and when they say like, well, yeah, but you can't be a Christian and believe that. Um, and you know, maybe there are some of those things that are true, um, but you get to discover that for yourself. And you get to ask those questions and you get to wrestle with that yourself. And you can say, okay, but I'm going to anyway. And just the freedom in that of like, okay, thank you for your input, but I'm going to anyway. Um, And we'll see where it takes me. We'll see where I go and, and where he and I end up.
0: Well, ultimately you're the only one living with you anyway. Um, Yeah. But for so long, some of us have been so bombarded with the thoughts and uh questions and judgments of others for you know our entire lives and so it's really difficult to to give that up and I so I think that's very important Abby and thank you for sharing that freedom that can come uh from from asking questions, getting things wrong, getting things right, figuring it out. Because ultimately, yeah, it is our own journeys. So that was thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I have so appreciated your time. Um, Do you have anything else that you want to share or say? You know, I've learned so much about, um,
1: I think what's truly beautiful about scripture, about God. I think it's so rich and deep when it is um, truly, uh, when you're truly allowed to be free in it. And, I want to hold on to that. I want to cling to that. Um, I want other people to see that. And I grieve the ways that my faith tradition has made that difficult for people to hold on to and to see, to feel truly loved and accepted um, inside of it, um, to feel the expansiveness. And I hope that this journey that this life of mine continues both in my own experience, but also in the experience that others have as they come in and out of my life, that they experience that expansiveness um, and the richness and the depth that I think I get to live in. And that gives me a lot of hope for the future.
0: Abby, I cannot thank you enough. Um, this interview has been so special for me because you have been someone that I have looked up to my entire life. Um and I'm so thankful to to just get to sit down and talk with you um and we could talk more about this maybe we'll have an episode 2 uh part 2. Um <laughs> but I just want to say thank you. Thank you for trusting me to to air this and thank you for your time and your commitment and your leadership as a woman. I appreciate it. Well,
1: thank you for letting me talk about this and letting me talk your ear off all night long. Um, <laughs> Not <laughs> at also, all. Also, thank you for have, you know, being a friend who is walking with me and alongside me in all of this. Um, it's nice to have people that know your past. I know a lot of people that I have met on this journey for the first time, but it is wonderful to know people who are asking similar questions and um and not afraid of the questions that I'm asking that also know me from all the way back so I really love that you guys are home to me too
0: well you're you're so fantastic thank you so much (laughs) for sharing your time with me um you guys that's it for this episode of the b podcast we'll catch you next time Today's episode was made possible by our local online Facebook boutique, Pink Amethyst Boutique. My husband and I started this Facebook boutique community about seven years ago, and we would love for you to join us. We're an online boutique specializing in confidence, love, and comfort for all women of every age and stage of life. We carefully select and offer beautifully crafted articles of clothing that will last for seasons to come. It's much more than an online boutique, it's a community of women who share the love of comfort, style, and feeling good in their own skin. Please join our Facebook boutique at Pink Amethyst Boutique on Facebook. We'll have new pop-ups coming this spring. All new members will receive free shipping on all orders through June. Again, make sure to join our Facebook community by searching Pink Amethyst Boutique or just email me at thebepodcast at gmail.com if you need help finding us. All new members receive free shipping on any order through June and existing members get a 10% discount on their next purchase with us by simply rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing our pod.